When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Maryland sports fans. There's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Good afternoon, everybody. It is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Hope you're all doing well out there. Hope you're doing as good as you can be, staying safe and staying healthy. I know there's a lot going on across this country, and uh, hopefully we can stay together and keep moving forward. Uh, It's better to move forward in, in locked arms than separated. So hopefully, West Coast, you're doing well with the fires. Across this country, there is social unrest in certain places. I know Louisville is, uh, everyone's keeping an eye on that right now because of the whole situation down there. But also we have the pandemic that's not going away, that's affecting all of us. And that brings us to our next guest, and that is Jordan Groby from NEVA the National Independent Venue Association. How are you doing today, Jordan? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Jay. Thanks for coming on. I really do appreciate it. This is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. I am a huge, huge you know, person that intakes live music on a yearly basis. I do about 20 to 30 shows, usually at the club level or the mid-level theater level, and those are the ones that are most affected by this pandemic uh, because of just the loss of revenue and, you know, places shutting down and not being able to get the occupancy going. And then also because no one seems to be wanting to help them out. Um, I know there's a bill on the floor or bill that's been proposed, but I don't know where that's going and, and when that's going to happen. And hopefully you can touch 
you know, a, a light on that and give us a little bit more information. Um, why don't you tell us first about your organization for those that don't know? Sure. So NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association, um, was founded in roughly April as a unified response to COVID and all of the closures associated with it. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult because we're all independent venues. So many of us either knew each other from, you know, industry conventions, things like that, um, or just from the fact that we used to be competitors. And now we're all faced with this insurmountable problem that none of us can bear through alone. And um, it was pretty clear from the onset that, number one, this wasn't going to be brief, and number two, this wouldn't be something that we can take on individually. Um, so thankfully, there was an organization called Marauder. Uh, they're a publicity and marketing firm in the music industry. And... Um, they had organized independent venue week going back a number of years in both the UK and the U S and so they already had all of these connections to all of these independent venues. And as soon as all of these closures happened, they were able to get us onto a phone call and say, all right, look, what do you guys need? How can we make it through this? And so born out of that original meeting was this organization that now has uh, nearly 3,000 members. When we talk about this, because I've brought this up on previous shows, you know, the future of live music, I think it's mm-hmm. important for people to understand that, yes, the, the, the main objective of Neva is to get support for these clubs, these theaters that these bands play in not just rock, but jazz and all other types of, you know, comedy clubs. Mm-hmm. What people, I think, don't understand when you peel back the orange is how this all affects everyone. It affects communities. It affects companies that provide liquor to those venues, provide food to those venues. And if the venues start shutting down and there's less distribu- you know, distribution of liquor or food and what happens in the communities? You know, I know when I go to a live show, you know, I may not eat at the venue that I'm going to see the show at, but I might eat at a restaurant. Or if I'm going into Wisconsin to see a show, I may stay at a hotel. So it all kind of goes together. And for those that maybe just brush it off as like, oh, you know, these clubs will come back. It's not just about the clubs, although your organization is focused on it. But I want people to understand that this is affecting everybody. It affects the waitresses, the bartenders, the, the, the security at the clubs, the, the roadies for these bands that you know, rely on these tours, even though they're... Absolutely. You know, so this is really you know, not just... You know, this is communities. This is about community more so than it is about saving the live venues. It's a, it's a massive ecosystem yeah. that really has far reaches through everything that we do. Um, it's an estimate that we have 5.1 million people in the live events industry that are currently completely unemployed. Um, we have estimates that say for every dollar in ticket sales that are generated at small venues, $12 in the local economy is raised, whether that be through, as you were saying, going to bars, going to restaurants, going to hotels. Um, all of these different facets that come together that people don't really realize 
exist behind the scenes, including even the fact that so many of these venues, when they started years and years ago, they started in parts of town that, you know, were kind of slowly growing, but generally had been left alone because it was all they could afford to be in. And now all of these people flock to those venues for shows. So the community around them has grown massively. You get new apartment buildings, you get new restaurants, you get new hotels, and none of that exists without the main draw to the area, which is these venues. You know, when you think about the tax on a ticket that people pay to go see these shows, that tax money, like you just said, goes to those communities, goes to that. And if there's no revenue generated, you know, the hometown that I grew up in, uh, I grew up outside of Chicago in Des Plaines, Illinois. And there's a theater that was, it was an old movie theater called the Des Plaines Theater, you know. Um, and they were converting this into a theater for music, for comedy. Um, the owner of this club also owns the Arcata Theater, which is in St. Charles. And they were going to be doing the same thing here in Des Plaines, Illinois. It had a train um, line that came from the city and then came from the far reaches of the suburbs into this so people could commute to this club and then there's restaurants and there's all these things around it if there's an example of what's happening like you just said these clubs and how the communities rely on these draws and that tax money to come in and when you see the lack of progress being made and trying to get aid I mean everyone talks about PPP but I want you to touch on that too as well as how that's not really set up to help these clubs and these theaters. Absolutely. So the main issue with PPP, the payroll protection program is in the name. It's there to protect payroll and it works well for the businesses that are able to operate and still have people on their payroll. You know, a restaurant that maybe was struggling can struggle a little bit less after having received some payroll protection but we're completely closed. There's no way for us to safely operate in the realm that we used to. So certainly some places have reopened as bars if they can, if they have outdoor spaces, but there's no way for us to put on a show. There's no way for us to be anywhere near the business level that we were at before. You know, maybe people are bringing in one or 2% of the revenue that they used to see, but all of their fees and their rent and their mortgage and all of their previous expenditures are still at 100%. So there's just no feasible way forward for us without additional help. And even then, PPP funding is limited and has a lot of put-in-place restrictions for how you can use it. And if you don't use it that way, then it's not uh, forgivable. And so it, it certainly was created with the intention of helping small businesses, but there are, are certainly small businesses that it left out. And that's where the Save Our Stages Act and the Restart Act is meant to fill those gaps. Where are we at in terms of progress towards getting aid toward to these to the clubs and these theaters? It is a good question. Um, we have a lot of co-sponsors on the Save Our Stages Act. Um, we're looking at somewhere in the 40s in the Senate and somewhere in the 120s in the House. Um, but the House and the Senate aren't really voting on anything right now. So 
we're kind of just waiting for something to happen, which is a brutal place to be in because we've needed this help since April. And every day that passes is another day that these venues are really struggling. And it's not just that, you know, some of these venues won't see it through because they won't. 90% of the members that we have have stated that if they don't get this federal help, they won't be able to reopen on the other side of this. Um, but it's the idea that these are all small businesses that are like the passion projects of the people who opened and run them. And every day that they go on without help is another day deeper into this ditch of debt that they get stuck. And it's, it's a wager that if they keep fighting this fight, eventually they'll get help and they'll be able to dig their way out. But if that help doesn't come, they've just been digging deeper and deeper and deeper, and it will seemingly have been for nothing. Uh, we, we all have our opinions on why, you know, why nothing's being voted on. I know a few weeks ago there was the additional aid that failed to come to fruition in the House and in the Senate in terms of, well, I think the Senate passed a bill for, you know, the additional $1,200 for people, but I don't think the House could, or maybe I have that confused. But I, 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 I'm, I was reading the material that you sent me, and I just kept thinking about that, like, how is this going to pass if we can't even get the unemployment amount agreed upon? We can't even get the twelve hundred hours, additional twelve hundred hours out to the people that you know that was talked about. We can't even do that. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm reading this and I'm like, Jesus, I'm like, you know, where are we at as a society as a as a as a government where we can't do what's obvious and we can't do what's needed? Basic. I mean, you know, there's always this idea that one side of the aisle doesn't like the arts and the other side is a proponent for it. But that's not really what the argument is. The argument is, like I said, is about the communities and about saving those communities with these theaters mm-hmm. and the restaurants. Which is and, why in this, in this rare situation that we're in, of the 150 representatives and senators that support these bills, it is vastly bipartisan in a world that doesn't seem to be bipartisan on any other level which it's very thankful that we have that support. But again, unless that support turns into actual legislation, it doesn't really mean anything. Is this also something that is per market? And I mean that because when we look at the landscape of the country and we see some states not allowing, you know, clubs to open or people to, you know, attend shows inside, and then you have other states that are opening up. Is there a difference between if you're in Texas versus Illinois versus, you know, Florida versus California? Is that or is it, you know, am I, am I speaking about something that, you know, all theaters across are affected maybe the same or at some level and there's some differences? There's really not as much of a difference as you'd think and not as much of a difference as those localities would hope. Um, I think that the goal for a lot of those localities that did allow more events, um, their goal was that some of these jobs and some of these events and the emotions that come with them would come back. Um, but even with the restrictions that are in place, it's just not a feasible 
it's not a feasible business endeavor because you're having 25% of your capacity, but now you're bringing in all of your staff to ensure that everything is being committed as safely as it could be. And to execute that safely costs a lot of money, probably more than it would have if you had just sat there closed. And it's an unfortunate mix of things that people are trying to navigate through this. But at the end of the day, even if you do have a completely safe way of executing these events and making a little bit of money, number one, it's nowhere near enough. It doesn't bring you anywhere near being whole in this problem. And it also doesn't address the fact that you could have a stage that's completely ready to go, but you don't have musicians that are ready to go. Because as horribly difficult as this has been for the artists who make 75% of their entire income on touring, it's just not safe to hit the road right now. So if you have artists who live in New York or California or wherever, they're not going to be able to get to your venue to put on that show. You know, if, if there's one way to spread a disease, it's to put 12 people inside of a van and drive from city to city. <laughs> and it's just not a safe or feasible thing to do at the moment until we have this virus better under control. There's also the subject of confidence in the attendee that like myself that goes to these shows on a yearly basis. I mean, you know, even if the numbers go down or if there is a vaccine, there's still going to be some hesitant behavior for the Mm -hmm. people that go to the show until people are more comfortable about going out. I mean, you know, when you go to a small club or a small theater and there's 300 or 400 people packed in a small room on top of each other, what's it going to be like when that person starts coughing? You know, so there's so so. <laughs> right. but, but what I'm saying is like it's not, you know, when the you know, if the pandemic just, you know, disappeared tomorrow, there's still going to be people that are like, I don't know if I still want to go to a show, meaning these clubs are still going to need help far into the recovery because there's going to be that consumer hesitant, you know, hesitant behavior of going to these live shows and go, and experiencing that again. I mean, I know we just, we're done with summer now. I don't know how many um, communities canceled their annual rib fest or festival or whatever, which is also another way communities generate money. And those, and there's bands that are hired to do that, but people are more comfortable because they're outside, mm-hmm. but now going inside, you know, I had a, I, I forget who it was a few weeks ago on my show that said, you know, have you, have you looked at people when they see someone cough or sneeze, the people around them, they look like, Oh my God, you know, it's like, so when's, you know, but, but so you're packed in in a, you know, at the Aragon ballroom in Chicago and there's 2,500 people packed in or whatever. And someone sneezes or someone coughs on people, you know, I mean, that's gonna, I mean, what's that going to do to the people around that? Which means again, it's certainly going to take some adjusting. Yeah, um, and I think that that's pretty dependent upon just how effective any of these um, measures are. You know, if we have a vaccine that proves to be extremely effective, then I think you'll see anxiety start to wane. Um, but it's going to take a vaccine being announced and then produced and then distributed at volume, and you know, no one really knows when any of that is going to happen. Um, but what we do know is that when the virus is under control, people miss each other and they miss being in a room together and they miss hearing a thumping bass, getting them on the floor, getting them dancing. 
and they miss being able to connect in that way. And as soon as we're able to do that again safely, I think everyone is going to be desperate for it. I agree. I mean, I'm itching to go to a live show, but I, you know, I want to make sure that it's, you know, safe and, and, you know, something that won't affect me a couple of weeks down the road. Um, I guess my, my question as a result of that is, will clubs, do you, I mean, do you think that clubs will change, you know, how they do things? Will there be, you know, what's the cost going to be to put in safety measures inside these clubs? Is that going to be part of this package that you guys are trying to get where, you know, things are more automated when you go through doors or go into a bathroom so you're not touching things? Is that part of that too as well, or is that up to the individual club? Well, it's an interesting question. As, as far as what the actual technologies and practices are in place, um, there have been numerous research publications that have put out some guidelines that say, you know, okay, you're going to put on an event. If you're doing this, here is the safest way to do it. And it's not cheap, you know. Um, but it has been done, and it has been done safely. I don't know how feasible it is as a business model. And I think that in the end of the day, we're just waiting for it to be a safer external environment rather than relying on the need for like really stringent internal policy. Um, because it's just, it's just going to be so difficult to implement on a wide scale and on a profitable scale. Um, and I think that once we do have a better handle on the virus, there will certainly be measures taken in the future that maybe weren't ever taken before. Um, but I don't think that we're going to need to, you know, permanently have plexiglass in between tables and things like that. We always talk about the new normal that's going to arise from this. Um, in your viewpoint, how is this going to change the live experience? Either you know, it, um, when this is all over and we start to get back to that new normal, short term versus long term. I mean, in the short term, you will certainly see anxiety in the crowds, and you'll see a lot of effort undertaken to make sure that everything is being done as safely as possible. Um, as far as safety is concerned, that's always been the top of everyone's list. It's just never particularly meant pandemic safety. Um, so anything that's required will just be added into a traditional safety plan. As for how this looks long-term, I, you know, it's anybody's guess. <laughs> Um, what I, what I will say is what happens right now with regard to these independent venues will have a very long lasting impact on the live music scene as a whole. If 90% of these venues do fail because we haven't received any federal aid, it, it, the, the quote that I'm going to refer to here is from James Murphy from LCD Sound System. He likened the independent music scene to that of the Great Barrier Reef. It is completely integral to everything that we do and without it everything just kind of stops and at the same time once it's gone it doesn't come back these independent music venues have been around for decades and they are cultural hubs because the people that opened and run them care about the culture it's not a profit motive 
And a lot of the time they're taking chances on new artists that, you know, when Lizzo was starting out, who knows what her first show's ticket sales looked like. But someone put her on that stage, and now she's a superstar. But she needed to work her way up. Every artist starts somewhere, and every artist needs a small stage and a small audience before which they can craft what they do. And without those stages, I don't even know where new artists will get their start, or if we'll even have them. And that's why you've got so many artists now who have been so vocal about supporting us, which has helped a lot. Mike, next question is, what do you say to people who feel that, yeah, these clubs will close down, but, you know, there's just going to be a supply and demand, you know, everyone's going to go out to shows once things get back to normal, and then clubs will reopen and, you know, communities will have these theaters again, just like before. I mean, it depends on where you are. It depends on if the giant conglomerates that will be left putting on shows in the absence of independent venues see enough of a profit margin in your area. And if they don't, then there won't be shows there. So if you're in the middle of the country and you have, you know, two small venues in your area that you absolutely love, the odds of those places being purchased and flipped into another music venue are astronomically low, in which case you're just going to have to drive for a couple of hours to find what you're looking for. And that's going to be brutal for fans of music, and it's going to be brutal for musicians, and the entire community will suffer as a result of that. And even in the places that culture is strong, in these city strongholds that will always be profitable for music, that doesn't mean that rent will always be affordable enough. When these places get flipped in New York City, the odds of them being replaced with anything else that has that kind of cultural weight to it is just so low because the cost of being in that space is astronomical. It's also logistics, too. I mean, if you're a new band and you're putting together a tour to get exposure and play in these small clubs and theaters and you're starting out in California and you're trying to find the most cost-effective way to tour across the country. If you're Mm -hmm. touring in a certain area and there's a club that is open in, let's say, Nebraska, but the three or four clubs that existed on that route prior to COVID don't exist anymore, it logistically mm-hmm. doesn't make sense to go out of the way cost wise because you got to pay gas, you got to do all, you know, food, all that mm-hmm. stuff because it adds maybe another day or two. And let's face it, you know, a newer band, you know, they're not getting the draw and they're not getting the guarantee that some of these other well known acts are going to get. So logistically, mm-hmm. it makes no sense for them to go to that club in Nebraska or go to that club in you know, wherever in, in North Dakota or, or wherever it is. So they keep on this route and eventually, even if that club stayed open, they're not going to get the acts that the people would go to previously to that show in that community. And they're going to suffer by that, you know, because that's happening. Absolutely. Every night that a small band is on the road and they're not playing before fans, is is a loss for them and if it takes them 
24 hours to drive to the next venue because there's nothing in between, then you're really going to be struggling as an artist. What do you see as an effect of this on the other side? You know, when we we talk about the artist not having a place to play, will, you know, because of the financial struggles that these club owners are having, these theater owners are having, will there be a difference in how guarantees are given? You know, are they going to, you know, like a lot of artists get a guarantee no matter if there's 10 people in the venue or 300 people in the venue. Will that change Mm -hmm. as a result of this? I don't know. Um, it's a good question. I think that there has to be a degree of flexibility as far as these first coming shows are concerned because no one has any idea how it's going to work and we've all taken these huge losses. Um, but no one really knows how this industry as a whole is going to recover and move forward and in what form those things will take. Um, Certain companies have put forth their policies and they have not been well received by the artist, but we've all, you know, been hit with this insurmountable hill of losses. And it's going to be very difficult for everyone to dig themselves out of without help. And you also run the risk too as an artist that you if you do accept these changes in the guarantees and whatnot. And 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 the reason behind it is because, like you just said, we've all dealt with the aftermath of this pandemic. We're dealing with it currently. But if you accept that that's going to be the norm, it's never going to come back to the way it was. And that's some you know people's point of view. So they have to have, remain, you know, steadfast and hard-lined on, you know, maintaining what was before, which, again, will also have a an effect on everything, you know, because I mean, I've heard artists say that if that does change, they're not going to play live anymore. They're going to retire. And obviously those artists have the ability to do that because they've had, you know, they have the financial means to do that. But on the other side, there's many artists that don't. I mean, most artists right now have had to go back to work. I interviewed um, Eddie Spaghetti from the band Super Suckers several months ago. And he's like, if this doesn't change soon, I'm going to have to find another means of income. And I haven't worked in 20 years. I haven't had a job in 20 years. So what am I qualified to do? Um, (laughs) You know, so. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that people don't realize, too, is that, you know, of the 5 million people in this industry that are unemployed as a result of having no work at all, uh, so many of them are also musicians who, you know, if they can't be on the road all the time earning a living wage doing that, then they keep themselves afloat at home by working at these venues. And without any of this ecosystem, it is just going to be a massive struggle. When you, I can sense frustration when you talk about where the bill is at in terms of trying to get support for these clubs and theaters. When do you anticipate, I mean, obviously you said you don't know, but is there going to be movement on this? Does there have to be movement on this by the end of the year? I mean, there's constantly movement on the bill in the sense that we've been adding people as co-sponsors every single day. Even throughout the August recess, we've been adding people. And so the support is there. I think the frustration is that the support is there and yet it's not enough somehow. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that we, we almost have enough votes to pass this thing completely on its own. Hopefully we'll get there, but then it still has to be brought to the floor. 
and no one has any idea what Congress itself looks like right at the moment. Do you think it's going to have to be till after the election, till after these people take, you know, the the seats that they won in January for in order for this to happen? It's so hard to say. I mean, we were all hopeful that we would have this in July because we were all convinced that by the end of July, when pandemic unemployment assistance ran out, they would have to do something. And then they didn't. (laughs) Um, And, you know, these are all my coworkers who, you know, no longer have that additional money in their pocket per week and are really starting to struggle, which doesn't even address the fact that so many of these gig workers have had difficulty getting on unemployment in the first place because the system just wasn't built for gig workers. Yeah, if you're an independent contractor getting unemployment, I know they said that they would allow that in the beginning of this pandemic, but the process is so long. And the process, I mean, you, you, if you make a mistake, you're denied. Then you got to go through the appeal process. So it's not an easy thing. It's not just you fill out the form and then in two weeks you start getting checks. It's, it's a little different for people that are independent contractors, whether you're a roadie, whether you're a sound person, whether you're a tech, whether you're, you know, whatever the case is, it's not easy. And there really hasn't been any direction from the government in terms of independent contractors and how to fill out the forms and how to go about this process. The the system was never designed for people like that. So instead of them creating something to make it easier, they've got to, you know, get rejected, go through the appeal process and then keep their fingers crossed that they get checks, they get, they get money. Mm-hmm. And then when you think about it from the perspective of, of the employees as well, these are very skilled workers that have been doing this for decades. You know, if you've been a lighting designer on the road with an artist, you've probably been at it for decades and you're an extremely skilled individual. That's not an easy job, but it's not really applicable outside of this industry. So what are you going to do before these concerts come back? There's not another job for them to go to. And I think that's the struggle that they're all facing is that this has been their passion. This has been their experience. You know, all of their resumes are catered to exactly these specific things that we now can't do. And that's a really rough place to be in for a lot of people. And if they do end up having to find other jobs, then what's going to happen when we do come back? We're going to need them again, but they might not be there. We have also discussed mental health issues in the music community with musicians um, who struggle with depression, who struggle with with other disorders as well. And this has to be just with the stress, not only on mm-hmm. you know the musician of where they're going to play next and when they're going to play, if they're going to play. But like you said, you know, this is giving a lot of stress towards the people that are running out of money that they put aside or, or they're running out of money that they maybe they had a guarantee on and it's going away. And that's just creating a domino effect in terms of mental health issues as well. Have you seen or discussed any of those issues within your organization and how you guys can help and outreach programs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's constant conversations regarding, you know, how we're able to stay in touch with our employees and, you know, how we're able to just sort of kind of try to keep our community intact. Because so many of these people, if they do have these struggles, which I think at this point during the pandemic we all do, uh, whether we did before or not, 
we need other people that we can lean on and we need to know that we're not going through these things alone. And for a lot of people, that was the other thing that kept them in this industry and kept them at these places because these places and the communities that they generate are unique and are special and they're there for the people that haven't found that anywhere else. And I think that's been a really difficult thing to try to contend with the fact that those spaces are closed and that the people that we used to spend 18 hours a day with, we can't see anymore. Cause that's the other thing that people don't always realize is that like they're there at the venue for a show for two, three, four hours. The people that put that show on, they got there at the crack of dawn and they're going to be there until three, four in the morning the next day because everything has to be loaded in. Everything has to be loaded out. Just everything that goes into making a show happen. There's so many moving parts. There's so many people and suddenly all of that is quiet and all of those personal relationships and friendships are quiet. And that's been, I think really difficult for people. When you consider that the delay in the bill may mean it's going to be months before there's any help um, because Congress can't get their act together. The Senate can't get their act together. Is there an alternative that you guys have thought of a plan, maybe localized communities or different states? I mean, obviously some states don't have any money to begin with. Some states don't have, you know, money to do certain things, but is there an alternative out there that, may work if this never happens? Well, I mean, certainly all of the separate regions within the country have also now been coming together as uh, as a result of NEVA. They've been forming their own smaller, more regional groups, and they've been able to lobby their local governments for some form of help. Um, so that's been important, and that's been relevant in a way that it certainly wouldn't have been without the virus. Um, and there is the long-term hope that when we do get through this, having all of these connections and now being united will help protect us from a potential future problem. Um, Strength in numbers, is, you know. Right, but we have to get through this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, that's the problem. And um, it's... The, the ticket revenue loss estimate from Polestar for 2020 is $10 billion. So this is not a problem that's solved by one person getting out their checkbook, unless that person is, you know, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a problem that really has to only be addressed with federal aid. And um, we're just hoping that that happened. The ten billion that you talk about with Polestar is that just the ticket sale? That's not the revenue generated for the communities, right? Correct. Yep. Right. So you know, and when you're looking at ticket sales, you're forgetting about you know merch sales and alcohol beverage sales and food sales, all of those other auxiliaries that happen when you're at a show. Right, and getting back to our earlier point, all that stuff is taxed beer is taxed the tickets are taxed and mm-hmm. all that goes to state and local governments that again pay for your roads pay for your infrastructure within those communities all that stuff goes into that so like we talked about the ecosystem and the domino effect 
you know, so don't just think of it, who's ever listening, don't just think of it as, oh, it's, you know, save this club. Yes, we want to save that club, but we don't just want to save it because of, so bands can play there, which is another, which, yes, we do, but the larger picture, the bigger picture is the community that, will feel the effect that loss of revenue that i mean when you think of the amount of money generated by liquor for a local community whether you go to a liquor store or you know a club all that's taxed and there's a higher tax on liquor than there is on on food in some areas so that all matters that's a big difference for a community that's trying to rebuild roads or trying to outfit you know re-outfit schools for safety or whatever it is that's how that stuff is paid for sometimes so it's really, Absolutely. really important. It's also important just from the perspective of when we are through this, all of those places are going to really need the economic boom that would come with having these venues present um, because they've all been spending money to try to keep other people afloat throughout the pandemic and trying to support their hospitals and their schools through all of these new rules and, and regulations. And, I think one of the only ways that they can really make any of that back is by having these giant economic centers that are these venues. Well, Jordan, it's been great chatting with you, great talking with you. What can my listeners do to help support this? Please let them know. Give them some information before you go. Sure. So, I mean, we've only gotten this far to begin with because we've sent nearly 2 million emails to all con- all members of Congress. So, Please continue doing that. Go to SaveOurStages.com. It will show you who your representatives are, and there's a really easy autofill form. Feel free to edit it how you'd like, and that goes straight to your representatives. Um, Other than that, if you do have money to give, go find your local venue, support their staff GoFundMes, buy their merch. Just do whatever you can to keep this community alive. And the same goes for artists that you love because they're struggling too. Jordan, thank you very much for doing this. I I really do appreciate it. I've been wanting to have you guys on for a while. I know my listeners are always asking, you know, what's going to happen. I know we did a show a couple months ago, what the future of live music will look like, but this is really kind of digging down and see, you know, and, and, and telling people what's at stake here. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. And I'm glad that we're able to tell our story. And I hope that the next time we talk, it will be, it'll be with happy news. I hope so, too. Everybody, that's Jordan Groby from NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association. I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. I'm a soldier. I'm in the trenches, fighting every day to succeed. Oh!
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 